Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we examine topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. In June of this year, during Pride Month, in the case of Fulton versus Philadelphia, the United States Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the city of Philadelphia cannot refuse to work with Catholic Social Services, a faith-based agency, on the grounds that the agency has refused to certify same-sex couples as foster parents. In the days leading up to the decision, I spoke with many LGBTQ folks to understand the stakes of the Fulton case and what happens when organizations exclude LGBTQ plus individuals using religion as their justification. Here's Casey Suffredini, CEO and National Campaign Director for Freedom for All Americans, a bipartisan organization whose mission it is to secure full non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people nationwide. Casey is a nationally recognized campaign strategist and expert in LGBTQ issue advocacy. So, well, first I'll just say what the Fulton versus the City of Philadelphia case is about. So this is a case that involves a religious child foster care agency who entered into a contract with the City of Philadelphia to offer foster placement services. And during that contract, then decided that they would refuse to serve same-sex couples who would come to that agency seeking to serve as parents to these foster children in need. And the question in the case is whether or not this religious agency can unilaterally change this contract that they voluntarily entered into and dictate the terms under which they will provide these services, which they're receiving taxpayer dollars to provide. And the implications of the case, I mean, there's a number of levels of implications to this case. The most basic level is whether or not same-sex couples who are willing and qualified to provide loving homes to children waiting in foster care for these forever homes can be denied access to these agencies in order to partner with these children to create forever families. But there are larger implications to the case as well, which is that if religious agencies are able to dictate the terms under which they receive public dollars to provide services to the public, that could have devastating consequences for non-discrimination laws all over the country, not just in the city of Philadelphia. Should a religiously owned and operated organization be allowed to exclude same-gender loving couples from providing foster homes on the premise that to do so would be against their religious beliefs? And if that organization, which is tax-exempt, by the way, is allowed to exclude tax-paying LGBTQ plus citizens, should it still be entitled to city funding and support? Well, the Supreme Court said yes. I spoke with Kathy Renna, the principal of Target Q and communications director at the National LGBTQ Task Force, prior to the Supreme Court decision. Kathy has played a central role in shaping nearly all major issues affecting media representation of the LGBTQ plus community, from the beating death of Matthew Shepard in 1998 to the fight for marriage equality to working with the team that coordinated historic coverage for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Obviously, working with the National LGBTQ Task Force, we have a very high level of interest in the case and working with colleague organizations. And in particular, the legal organizations have got this covered in the sense that they are really explaining this for exactly what it is, which is a religious organization that receives public funding that's asking for a license to discriminate based on their beliefs. And if you are an organization that receives public funding, you need to follow the law. You know, that's the basic argument here. I mean, they can talk about licenses and contractors and they can legalize us to to death (laughs) if you listen to the oral arguments. But the reality is that this is a faith-based organization that would be given a license to discriminate. This doesn't just affect LGBTQ people. This would affect anybody that they think doesn't fit in with a Catholic dogma, which, as we know, can include other faiths, Buddhist to Baptist. It can affect folks who are divorced. It can affect single parents. And I think 
this is a, a case of where we're looking at not just freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. And so it's an, a really important, impactful case that could have very, very far-reaching implications. But one of the pieces that we see more, but is still missing, which is that this is not about religion versus queer people, because there are queer people of faith. In fact, there are a lot of queer people who are Catholic. There are folks who are part of the Catholic Church and who are working for change within the church. As someone who was raised Catholic myself, many of us grew up as, and some want to continue to be part of the church. Casey made this same point. There are so many LGBTQ people who themselves are people of faith, who worship alongside other folks in their communities. And of course, there are many people of faith and many faith denominations that have come out in support of inclusion and equality for LGBTQ people and families, not in spite of their faith traditions, but because their faith calls them um, to call for inclusion and equality. So that is a stereotype that is out there that I think cases like this play into. And I hope that the public discourse around the case will give us the opportunity to break down that false idea and really talk about the intersection between religious and non-discrimination protections. Even before the U.S. Supreme Court decided to allow CSS to discriminate against queer couples, I realized that whatever happened with Fulton, it would be important to engage in a broader conversation about religion and LGBTQ plus Americans and how excluding LGBTQ folks from both secular and spiritual spaces does irreparable harm. And there's a long history of religious organizations, as well as a long history of the United States government, excluding LGBTQ plus folks. I spoke with Patrick Salmon, one of the co-authors and co-directors of the documentary Cured, which is an in-depth illumination of the struggle between LGBTQ activists and advocates and the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from its manual of mental illness. Historically, there's been real brutal treatment against LGBT people, people imprisoned, people suffering violence, people being killed and government carrying out those kinds of brutal treatments. And early in the 20th century, there was a thought that the problem, in quotes, could be medicalized, if you will, where the thinking was that actually we'll try and move this out of the criminal justice realm and make it a medical problem and move from a law enforcement government attack on gay and lesbian people to something that focused on curing, fixing, again, I say in quotes. And so the mental health authorities became part of that discussion. And during this time period, the American Psychiatric Association created the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM. And in the DSM is listed every mental illness. And it's in the first DSM in 1952, homosexuality is listed as a mental illness. And there were all sorts of really negative consequences that happened as a result of that. Many LGBT people were institutionalized and some unfortunately suffered terrible treatments. There was electroshock therapy. There was lobotomies. We were told by someone at the Smithsonian Museum of American History that it's estimated about 5,000 gay and lesbian people were forced to undergo lobotomies, which is just horrible to think about. And, you know, countless numbers were forced to undergo electroshock therapy and then later aversion therapy, which was a, another kind of, quote, treatment that was used against LGBT people. And it's important to spotlight this history so that people can understand the terrible things that went on and also appreciate the terrible price that LGBT people paid for this hostility and this, the fact that there was this mental illness label. Since the inception of the American nation, many LGBTQ people have been persecuted by their own communities, their faith communities, their state local and federal governments, and by their own families. And the sad truth is that discrimination is still happening, and protection from that discrimination remains largely absent. Right now, there are 29 states that lack express 
non-discrimination laws protecting people from discrimination in employment, housing, public spaces like restaurants, retail shops, you know, a lot of the places, frankly, that we go every day when we're not at homework or school. The patchwork of protections from state to state is, frankly, unfair to LGBTQ people and their families and their allies. And it's also really unworkable. So, you know, we are working to secure those protections nationwide and make sure that the 50% of Americans who live in those 29 states also enjoy those protections. Only 21 states and the District of Columbia have full non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ plus individuals, which means that the majority of states don't. We still live in a country where there are dozens of states where we can be fired for being LGBTQ, right? I mean, that affects the family dynamic tremendously. You know, we still have states where there is so much discrimination against not just the parents, but also the children. I mean, the issue of bullying in schools, it's really, really sad. My daughter is 15 years old and she is incredibly lucky to be at a performing arts school in Houston where not only are there other LGBTQ kids and she does identify as part of the community, there's one student that's a year ahead of her who's an out trans boy and they have a GSA and they're able to, but what we know is that for the vast majority of kids, whether they are part of the community or whether they are not, but their parents are, school can be an incredibly difficult place. In the United States, LGBTQ youth make up only 7% of the total U.S. youth population, yet they comprise a staggering 40% of all young people experiencing homelessness. People at every age and stage of life are experiencing discrimination and exclusion because of their LGBTQ plus identity. They are being kicked out of their homes, cast out of their families, excommunicated from their religious organizations, stigmatized and ostracized for who they are. Take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one. Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better, need so much better. We deserve better. Britt East, inspirational speaker and award-winning best-selling author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life, Get Real, Stand Tall, and Take Your Place, told me about the pain he experienced as a result of his family's rejection. So my family was steeped in fear. So it was all about reputation management. And so my queerness was threatening. My intellectual curiosity was threatening my rather feminine by our culturally constituted definitions of gender expression was threatening. Every side of my personality was othered from my family. And to make matters even worse as I looked exactly like the composite of my parents, so I couldn't even pretend I was left on the doorstep by some traveling band of wonderful artisans and vigilante kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's like I knew I was of this family, yet I didn't fit in. And so over the years, I've had to manufacture my own joy. I've had to find the happiness and the doing of things and build relationships Now, I'm not naive or or Pollyanna about it. I believe at least what I've experienced in my life is that I think that chosen family never quite gets you there, to be honest. It feels like there's a lack that really goes unspoken. Like what you're supposed to say is you you have to create your family and then the sentence ends there. What I have found is that that's true. And there's still a little like a lack there that you never, I don't know that that gap ever gets quite bridged. And I only offer that as a sense of empathy for anybody in your audience who might be out there kind of experiencing what I've experienced. Britt and I spoke about the double bind that many LGBTQ people experience when faced with the choice to be who they are and live authentically, knowing that there may be rejection, pain, and exclusion, 
or on the other side, to suppress their true selves and live a closeted existence. Britt told me about his readers' reactions to A Gay Man's Guide to Life. A lot of older gay men tell me that they wish they would have had the book 20, 30 years ago, which is nice, but even more importantly, more deeply, that they feel seen for the first time because they never had words to express what they were feeling all these years. The sense of, you know, the sack of rocks that so many queer people carry on our backs through the various adverse experiences we shoulder you know, in our journey, all the ways we feel discounted and unseen, all the bias and bigotry we encounter from every walk of life, and that maybe they had never had the words to match their experiences. And so in a way, it has relieved their burdens. And so I get letters from guys in their 70s and 80s and 60s. And it's so touching from all over the world. And it's been very, very, it's been very humbling. Beautiful. You know, I actually want to cry (laughs) a little bit because I feel like it's so moving that people would have that experience as a result of your words. But there's also a part of me that just feels so sad, like, oh my gosh, someone is 70, 80 years old and doesn't feel seen in this world, hasn't felt safe in this world. It's, it's tragic. Yeah. So I could never pass as straight. And one of the benefits associated with that is that I was forced to come out. I was forced to find that voice. But many people, maybe especially if they can pass as straight, don't necessarily have to fight that fight. They can slink into the shadows if they want to. And unfortunately, that can be a little bit debilitating. That can lead them to prolonging their journey. And so I have talked to dozens and dozens of American gay men in 2020, 2021, who are coming out at 70, coming out at 75, telling their wives and their grandkids that they're gay. And it's really humbling to think about what might have been had some things gone just a little different and how they were different for me. And, and so much about being queer in America is you can kind of presume the level of trauma somebody has absorbed and endured based on their age and where they grew up. And uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I spoke with Robin Oakes, an educator, speaker, grassroots activist, and editor of Bi Women Quarterly and two Bi Plus specific anthologies, the 42 Country Collection, Getting By, Voices of Bisexuals Around the World, and Recognize, the Voices of Bisexual Men, about how coming out can be both empowering and alienating. When I came out as bi back in the 1970s, in my first weeks of college, I came out into a world where there really were no resources for bi people. And the fact of that made my journey really, really hard. I felt extraordinarily unusual and rare. I had no idea how to find support or community or validation. And the result of that was that it took me five years to gather up the courage and strength to say out loud that I identified as bisexual. And that time was horrible. In retrospect, I believe I was suffocating in my own silence. And I was stuck in a place between knowing and being. You know, I knew who I was, but I didn't know how to be that in the world. When a person comes out, whether as queer, bi, trans, or any other identity that they hold, it's essential for them to be supported and affirmed in their disclosure. Yet all too often... What they're met with is rejection, exclusion, and discrimination. Here's Casey Safradini again. I think the experience of the plaintiffs in the Boston case is really illustrative of the experience of how discrimination operates in people's everyday lives. So the Boston case involves three different instances of discrimination involving three different people, two gay men and one transgender woman. And the transgender woman was Amy Stevens, and she worked at a funeral home in Michigan. She had worked there for over half of a decade, always had gotten great reviews, you know, was by all measures a great employee, and that was never contested by the employer. 
But what happened with her was at one point she got to a place in her life where she realized that she could no longer operate in the world, not living as her authentic self. And so she decided to transition from male to female. And she wrote a really heartwarming and thoughtful letter to her employer about the fact that she was going to transition and seeking their support and looking to work with them on how to make that transition in the workplace. And in response to that letter, her employer fired her and told her that he did not think that she could interface with the funeral home's customers if she were a transgender woman. And so she brought suit. Michigan is one of the 29 states that does not have an express statewide non-discrimination law. So she brought suit alleging that this was, you know, a violation of equal justice under law for her, because by all standards and by all measures, and like I said, the employer admitted to this as well, she was a great employee. She just happened to be a transgender person who wanted to be able to come to work and, and be who she was. And so that case got all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed that federal non-discrimination laws prohibit firing LGBTQ people just because they happen to be LGBTQ. Amy Stevens passed away on May 12, 2020, at the age of 59, but her legacy lives on. Through her advocacy, she helped trans individuals ensure protection against workplace discrimination. However, that victory doesn't take away the fact that Amy Stevens and countless others had to endure abuses and basic human rights violations, and they've had to fight for the ability to live and love and work. Casey and I continued our conversation. But even in that victory, she still, I mean, it's an important victory. These moments are are very important, but still, I think people still have to suffer through that, right? So there's still the fact that this person loses their job, has to fight for, right? Who like maybe could be focusing on their transition and other things in their life, but then suddenly all the energy has to go into paying for legal representation, you know, all these things. And so I think even in these victorious moments and cases, there still is a cost to the individuals involved, right? And I think that's important. There is. And you're, and I think your question actually is making, you're making the case for why we need express nationwide protections in the form of a federal statute that makes it very clear both to the individuals who are protected as well as to the entities who cannot discriminate against them based on these characteristics that those are the rules of play. And the reason is because our goal isn't to have a law in place so that people can sue when they face discrimination. Our goal is to have a law in place so people don't face discrimination, right? LGBTQ people aren't asking for anything special. We just want to be able to go about our daily lives and do what everybody else is doing and not face discrimination and harassment and violence just because of it. LGBTQ people want to be able to go about their daily lives. And for many people, daily life includes being part of a faith community. And while many faith traditions are welcoming and inclusive, some faith communities appear dead set against their own LGBTQ members. And to be fair, some LGBTQ circles can be hostile and exclusionary to religious people, including LGBTQ religious people. I remember back in the days when I was at GLAD, and now we're talking over 15 years ago, that within our own community, there was so much bias around expressing faith as a queer person because there was so much pain and there was so much rejection that so many of us had experienced. But then over time, you started to see more and more visibility of those who were fighting within different denominations. So, for example, I remember vividly watching on television when Bishop Gene Robinson was consecrated as the first openly gay bishop. And that was super powerful and incredibly meaningful, I think, to queer people of all different faiths to see that symbolic elevation of someone who was out but then balance it with the realization that as someone, and he, he's, a, he's a dear friend, Gene Robinson, having him tell the story of how he was wearing a bulletproof vest underneath his vestments because he had received death threats. So like balancing these things out and really acknowledging the fact that it takes a tremendous amount of courage for those who are working within different faith traditions to try and elevate the, not just the, like I said, the acceptance, but the welcoming of queer people. And so many people who are willing to stand up and question 
their various denominations. They deserve a tremendous amount of credit. There are religious leaders paving the way for inclusion, no matter the personal risks. And there are those actively fighting to exclude. The first time I saw a Muslim cleric, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and a Catholic priest walking hand in hand was to oppose an LGBTQ pride march. I said, wow, you people who are arguing amongst yourselves about all of the things that you argue about, you have a common enemy and you're now holding hands. And when I saw those three men holding hands, I'm like, what? What? This amazing, they're at a pride march. Oh, wait, no. They're not here to march in support. They're here in solidarity against LGBTQ people. That was Yuval David, award-winning actor, host, filmmaker, and advocate, whose most recent work, a full-length documentary entitled Wonderfully Made, specifically engages with what he refers to as LGBTQ plus R, which means LGBTQ plus religion. Because religion, like everything else, is influenced by the people who practice it. It can be used in ways that bring people together or that tear people apart. And there are, in fact, many religious leaders who are themselves members of the LGBTQ plus community. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. 
Reverend Naomi Washington Leaphart, the Director for Faith-Based and Interfaith Affairs for the City of Philadelphia and former Faith Outreach Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force, has been working as a public-facing queer spiritual leader and liaison for years. Religious communities, particularly Christian religious communities, have been the perpetrators of trauma uh, historically and even in terms of uh, our contemporary society. So we know that any care we provide in any way to folks has to account for or take seriously at least the trauma that they might be carrying. And so the social services field has gotten this message. To some degree, the healthcare field has gotten this message. I don't know that faith communities on the whole have gotten that message. I know that in the faith communities where I hung out over my formative years, we saw faith as the antidote to everything. (laughs) We saw God as the antidote to trauma. But that's not how this works, right? And so you need more than faith to be able to live with and through trauma. And also faith communities have not in any general sense, Christian faith communities in particular, in any general sense, confessed and apologized for the ways in which we have done harm. We have been part of the traumatizing experience of many people. That doesn't mean that religion can't be or hasn't been a force for good or that it should be abandoned. But at the same time, we can't ignore the human tendency to justify bigotry with religiosity. As a Black person, I'm very clear that people use their faith to try to get out of desegregation. They tried to say, well, it's against my faith to serve Black folk in my restaurant where it's against my faith to enroll my child in this desegregated public school. And so this is not a new tactic. And so that's why it's important for me as a Black woman to be interested in and involved in this work of making sure that religious refusals are not used in this way. That's why I'm interested in Fulton. That's why I was interested in Masterpiece a couple of years ago. That's why I'm interested in the Equality Act being passed, because I know this is the slippery slope. This is, (laughs) this ain't new. And I think folk need to hear that this is not about siloing people and pigeonholing people into these boxes of LGBT and Black and Indigenous. And uh, this is about understanding that we are all vulnerable to this same kind of political manipulation, right? done in God's name. And so we who believe in God have to show up when harm is being done in God's name to anybody. And so that's why I'm, I'm committed to this fight. Here is Yuval David again. There are people who don't necessarily lead a religious lifestyle or a completely religious lifestyle, but use religion as an excuse to be homophobic to hate others, to think that others are wrong. I mean, there are people who used religion to say that slavery was okay, that it was okay to own people, to enslave people. And they said, well, in religion, religion says this is okay. So there are ways to translate these books these texts that were created for a specific audience at a specific time and make it okay. There are people who are anti-feminist and use religion as an excuse. So for the people who do believe that women should be able to vote and that women should be able to have jobs and that women should be able to leave the house and that black people should be able to own themselves and that should be able to have the same pursuits that white people have, then shouldn't they also include the LGBTQ community? Because we also see there are black parishes that will condemn LGBTQ people. I'll say, well, wait a second, you're using the same arguments that were used against you and against your parents and your grandparents. 
not very long ago. Sometimes exclusion looks like censure. Other times it looks like erasure. I spoke to Angelique Gravely, who most people know as Angel, about her experiences as a bi-plus person of faith. So coming out in the context of a Christian college, there's a lot of conversation in the affirming side of the college about people's experiences of negative messages around sexuality and gender in the church. And when those experiences come up, they very much focus on what it's like to grow up in an evangelical church and the way that messages come about in an evangelical church. But like when I think about the tradition that I identify with, it's a Black church tradition, predominantly Baptist tradition. And so my experience of being queer in church is very different because I went to churches that were very don't ask, don't tell about it, which is common in a certain subset of Black churches. But that's not experience that was talked about because it was always the evangelical messaging, which I went to schools with that evangelical messaging. So I know there's a huge difference. But it was like, this is how the church talks about sexuality and these are the messages it's like this is how a section of the church talks about sexuality and this is how a section of the church internalizes messaging whereas for me the messaging was like we weren't talking about it there were like whispers of don't ask don't tell and so my internalized message was there aren't black queer christians or if there are, they're not supposed to be. That's a white thing. Angel is a bisexual educator, writer, speaker, and advocate based in the Philadelphia area. Since 2013, she has worked to bridge opportunity and knowledge gaps between marginalized and privileged communities by addressing LGBTQ plus issues from an intersectional lens. And her experiences are not unique. Many people who hold simultaneously marginalized identities can find themselves in spaces where, even if they are being included on the basis of one identity, that inclusion fails to encompass all of who they are or presents certain elements of who they are as unwelcome. And this doesn't just happen outside of the LGBTQ community. It happens within it as well. Patrick Salmon spoke to me about discrimination within the gay liberation movement. The reality is the gay liberation movement at the time had a lot of racism in the way that society did at the time. Of course, racism remains a huge problem. And it was at this time in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, we were told by some of the activists that the racism that they faced. One of our main storytellers is Reverend Magora Kennedy. And She is an African-American woman. She's now in her early 80s, and she spent five decades fighting for social change. And she was involved in the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and the fight for LGBT equality. Reverend Kennedy is a veteran of the Stonewall Rebellion. She was there for that in 1969. She was an original Black Panther. And Reverend Kennedy talked about the racism she faced at the time from the gay liberation movement. And she also talked about the homophobia she faced being involved in the civil rights movement. Human beings, even those desperately fighting for inclusion, can and often do exclude others. It is a very prevalent experience within the LGBTQ community for people to have been shunned and to directly feel that they are unwelcome, that they are not equal, that they are not looked upon the same way that straight people are. Even the term straight, right? It's like, oh, this is a straight line. This is the way you're supposed to go. Well, There's something wrong with that term that we still need to uh, change the term. So many LGBTQ people who came from faith-based families, from religious families, have dealt with the negative implications and are still conflicted and still trying to find their way. 
There are those who use religious texts as justification to discriminate against LGBTQ plus individuals. And there are those, such as myself, who will point to these same religious texts and explain how and why they can't be applied to consensual adult relationships, human sexuality, or gender identity. But are those kind of arguments missing the point? Oftentimes when people want to talk about even like very well-intentioned, loving queer people or like allies want to talk about faith or Christianity and like sexuality and gender, it comes down to being like, let's make sense of these five texts from the Bible that are sometimes called clobber texts, but where it's very clearly like St. Paul says, a man should not lie with a man or like Leviticus or whatever it is. And they want to either if they're against queer people living into the fullness of who they are, they'll be like, but the Bible says. And if they are trying to be more inclusive, they'll be like, well, let's really look at the Greek and let's reinterpret this in a way that makes it okay. And maybe we just didn't get what Paul meant before. And to me, like those conversations, while important on some level, are just personally really unhelpful because proof texting and like theological arguments and interpreting Greek words, while interesting, don't change people's minds, right? What changes people's minds is relationships and stories. And I think when we look at scripture, scripture is not a book of rules. It's a book of stories about like God showing up in ordinary people's ordinary lives and transforming their lives through love in all these crazy ways they could never have imagined possible if they'd just been paying attention to rules or arguments. And so I don't know, I think to the extent that we engage with each other and really listen deeply to each other's stories instead of having arguments about what the Bible says line by line or what theological tenets you have to hold to truly be a Christian. I think God shows up in our relationships and our stories. And that's why people's minds change because they know someone who's, who's gay or who's transgender and they discover through knowing them that like, oh, they're a full, amazing, human, gifted person who I can trust that they know the truth about themselves. And I can actually encounter God and be transformed in my relationship with them, to me, that's so much more important than it is to have arguments about who's right about specific theological ideas. Theological ideas and secular ideas. Rejection happens on all sides and hurts those who exist within the spectrum. From within the LGBTQ community, there are also are a lot of people who find religion to be taboo because we have a history of not being accepted within religious communities. So why should we now accept religious communities? My response to it is if we talk about acceptance and inclusion and respect, we must accept, include, and respect. So it's a two-way queer path. It might be helpful to look at how rejection plays out in people's lives. Getting back to the, the example of the Fulton case, where you have a child placement agency who doesn't want to work with same-sex couples. So what that can mean practically, it isn't just this abstract idea of there are homes that are being eliminated for these kids who are waiting for forever homes to go to. There's also really practical implications. So imagine a scenario where you have two siblings and one has kids and the other doesn't. And the one who doesn't have kids is gay and the one who does have kids is straight. And the one who is straight, something horrible happens to them and they die. And the kids end up in state care. And you have the other sibling who is gay, wanting to foster these kids, wanting to adopt these kids. And maybe they're not able to because the agency that these kids have been placed with where they're seeking a home for them is an agency that won't work with gay people. That's the really practical consequence. And I think everybody would agree that our priority would be to place those children with their uncle before placing them with complete strangers, right? An uncle who knows them, an uncle who wants them, an uncle who they know. And that may be an instance where that opportunity is foreclosed to them because the agency that they're being placed through. That's the kind of thing that's at stake in a case like that. And that's why it's not just about the policy and the politics. It's really about the people involved. And discrimination hurts everybody, not just LGBTQ people. Angel spoke to me about rejection, both in faith-based and LGBTQ spaces. I remember reading a story about a pastor who she came out as bisexual after she'd been married for a long time. Like Her husband knew 
totally affirming and accepting. But when it got out in the religious community, another religious leader met with her and chastised her for cheating on her husband because that is how he interpreted her claiming her identity. And so there are valid reasons for bi people to be a little more cautious about who they come out to. But the flip side of that is that bi plus people often don't then aren't given the connections to build community. And even the bi plus people who are willing to go out to find those connections, they'll often go to the LGBTQ plus community centers who typically don't have bi plus specific programming. And so then it's like, well, is there space for me? You have to wonder, okay, well, can I go to the gay event? Will I be kicked out of the gay event? Are they going to say biphobic things at the gay event? Or can I go to the non-specified event? But then am I going to get the support that I'm looking for as a bi-plus person? So there's always this balancing act of what's going to happen. Because one of the impacts of monosexism is that institutions aren't really set up to support bi-plus people, which makes it that much harder for us to find each other and connect with each other and to get that support that we need and to do it in sustainable ways because funding doesn't typically go to BIPLUS people, BIPLUS organizations. And monosexism often, I think, results in BIPLUS people feeling like they have to focus on other aspects of their identity or what they care about rather than on bi-plus specific issues. So it's all this huge cycle of barrier after barrier that then exacerbates things for bi-plus folks because having community and having connection is so important in combating the negative experiences that we have. I know for me personally, I had a lot of mental health struggles around my BIPLUS identity after I started getting involved in the local LGBTQ plus community because it was like there aren't resources for people like me and I expected that from the church I expected that from my Christian college but now I'm in the community and you still are telling me I don't belong or I'm not enough I'm not queer enough I don't deserve this and so that was really really heavy for me and it wasn't until I was able to connect with more bi-plus people that I was able to pull out of that and be like, it's not me. It's the system. Due to systems of suppression and repression, LGBTQ plus individuals often experience discrimination in a variety of different environments and a variety of different ways. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Later in the season, you'll hear from Jen O'Ryan, the founder of Double Tall Consulting and the author of Inclusive AF, a field guide for accidental diversity experts. But something she said during our time together seems essential to include here. 
I was getting my PhD in human behavior and I knew I wanted to do something around the LGBTQ plus community, but didn't know really what that was. And so we had about halfway through my program, we had yet another rash of youth suicides among the LGBTQ plus population. And it just catalyzed for me, it just it crystallized for me. It was kids are dying. And if they're not dying, they're having these horrible outcomes. And so I put my research hat on and looked to see what was out there. And almost all of the existing research framed being an LGBTQ youth or even an adult as an inherent risk factor for negative outcomes. And I realized we're looking at it the wrong way. Our queer kids are fine. It is the environment and that environmental response to their emergent identities that really causes this risk. As a public bisexual, Robin has done tremendous things for the bi-plus community, including crafting a definition of bisexuality that is used by many bi-plus activists around the world. Robin says, I call myself bisexual because I acknowledge in myself the potential to be attracted, romantically and or sexually, to people of more than one gender, not necessarily at the same time, in the same way, or to the same degree. Robin does a lot of work in community-based research and grassroots activism to improve bi-plus health, and she shared about the ways in which exclusion becomes internalized. Minority stress, in short, is the understanding that being a member of a stigmatized social identity group is stressful. And when people are under stress, they often engage in coping behaviors, which can range from healthy coping behaviors to unhealthy coping behaviors, such as cigarette smoking, drug use, suicidality, um, self-harm, and so on. And that is how you can actually measure minority stress. One of the most important things about minority stress as a concept is that it's an environmental problem. It's actually not caused by who you are. It's caused by where you are. You know, our identities in and of themselves, the fact of my being bisexual is not in and of itself stressful. The fact of someone being black or brown is not in and of itself stressful. The fact of being an immigrant is not in and of itself stressful. It's the stress comes from the hostility of our external environments. And that's something I would want every person who carries a stigmatized or more than one stigmatized identity to understand that the solution to minority stress is not changing who you are. The solution lies in changing our external environment so that they're not so hostile and toxic toward us. People are dying, whether due to violence perpetrated against them by others or because of the harm they inflict on themselves. And we can't wait on life after death to rectify that. I think that a preoccupation with the hereafter leaves no room for or takes away the incentive to care about what's going on right now. And I also think that because I was raised in this kind of Christian space, I also think that people think that they're protecting other people's hereafter too. That's where hate the sin, love the sinner kind of theology comes from. It's like, I love you. And that love is why I'm excluding you. It's why I am taking away your civil rights. It's why I am telling you you're going to go to hell. It's a weird, twisted love that is interested in protecting your hereafter, protecting your salvation, right? So this preoccupation with the hereafter has done damage in the right now. And so, yeah, the Bible writers were clear that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was like, it's happening, y'all, right? So my theological belief is that the kingdom of God is already forming in us. It's what we learned in seminary, the already but not yet reality of the gospel, right? We who can see it, we can imagine it, we can speak toward it, we can proclaim about it. It's because to some degree already here in spurts, but it isn't complete. It's not yet at the same time, right? And so that to me is the work of the gospel. It's how do we manifest the kingdom of God right now, right? And I don't know what 
is going to happen when I leave here. Like, I, I can't guarantee. I don't know. Nobody's ever come back and told me what. <laughs> but what I can do is make sure that I am manifesting the kingdom of God within me right now. Faith is not an insurance policy, as a friend of mine likes to say. It's not some, you know, let me cover my basis so that when the hereafter comes, when the next plane is here, I'll be okay. No, it's, it's no. And we don't have time for that. LGBTQ plus folks don't have time for that. Kids in foster care don't have time for that, right? Don't have time to wait on heaven. They need salvation right now in material ways. And those ways aren't elusive or intangible. In fact, they're not at all out of reach. They simply require us to engage differently with ourselves and each other. Things that have been used to drive us apart are the things that should be unifying us. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Racine Pendarvis, queen of the shameless plug, the empress of pride and goddess of D.C., is a father of five, grandfather of two, and mother of many. We know that there are barriers and obstacles, but if a road is in your way, find a detour. If the bridge is blocked, find another way, you know, and you have to find another way. We know things exist because of colorism and sexism and ageism. When a door is closed, I'm going to open a window and you just have to find that way, make that way, even in the midst of when it feels like you're not being able. You know, there are moments, even myself, there were things hitting me today, but I knew that I had some other things that I had to attend and be in the midst of and celebrate life and living and joy. So even when that hit me, I had to take a minute, reset and say, okay, what do I do about that? Do I sit in it? Do I allow that to put me in a space that's going to not allow me to share the joy and the light in my life? Because I have so much light and so much joy in my life, living, breathing, walking, talking. The moment I sit down in that quietness and I begin to breathe, I know how blessed I am. Racine and Kathy both told me that part of what led to a lot of loss, rejection, and pain within the LGBTQ community and the false dichotomy between faith communities and LGBTQ folks was the AIDS crisis. Everybody in this journey wasn't able to come on, come through with this journey through me. Everybody wasn't able to get to the mountain with me. But folks who were on that journey with me imparted something, showed me something, taught me something. Their resilient spirit, when they were at their points of being very vulnerable and low and weakened in bodies, riddled with illness, addiction, HIV, trauma, on top of trauma, and just trying to survive it and trying to come through it. And you just love on them in that space. Kathy said that the negative spotlighting of queer people led to a lot of ignorance, judgment, misinformation, and condemnation of LGBTQ plus folks. Part of it comes from years of stereotyping and sort of years of our own community, frankly, not being visible in a way that really demonstrated how diverse we are. You know, I mean, and and part of that is about the AIDS crisis that our community was essentially sort of thrown into a spotlight, but it was primarily gay white men, especially initially. And communities of color were not visible. You know, the lesbians rushed in to care for our brothers, but we were not super visible. 
we still deal with a tremendous amount of invisibility around bisexuality. Why? Because people want things to be simple. Talking about this stuff when it becomes complicated is not easy, but like we have to do that. If you don't look at the LGBT community as a microcosm of the larger culture, because who we are, our gender identity, our sexual orientation transcends our race, our age, our ethnic background, our economic status, our geographic location. Like it basically transcends everything else about us. We are a microcosm of the culture. In any community you belong to, any identity you hold, there are LGBTQ people who also belong to that same group, that same community, that same identity. And within the LGBTQ community as a whole exist people of every race, profession, culture, and religion. And no one needs to convert anyone. We just need to stop excluding those who might not completely understand. We really don't have to understand everything about each other to treat each other with dignity and respect. In many respects, the LGBTQ community, at least in theory, if not always in practice, stands for inclusivity. The reason we add letters to the alphabet soup of our community is because we keep recognizing that more people need to be seen the way they want to be seen, and we include them for who they are. So the more I do that, the more people connect to it, the more I learn about how other people want to be seen, the more I identify with them, the more they identify with me, the more we're a community, the more we're a movement, the more we're at the same table, the more we're in this together, the more you help yourself, you must help others. The more you help others, you help yourself. LGBTQ people have long been fighting for the right to love and be loved and to be who they were divinely designed to be. And religious communities have long been striving to offer people safety, comfort, salvation, and spiritual respite in a world that can be cruel. There are LGBTQ people of faith and faith communities that love and embrace and include LGBTQ people. There is tremendous opportunity for religious communities to embrace and include people of all identities, just as there is opportunity for the LGBTQ community to embrace people of faith. And in many spaces, that is already happening. Actually, people who are in the religious minority, now I'm not talking about religious minority groups, but I'm talking about people whose religious perspectives are actually in the minority, have been most resourced, most given the biggest platforms, right? So I'm thinking about, say, the white evangelical vote. That's a a subset, a smaller subset of the community. But I would argue that that particular perspective has dominated the discourse, has dominated in terms of resource allocation and political agency and power, right? And so it really is true that we have to, because frankly, the numbers are on the side of those of us who are interested in radical inclusivity, we have to act like We actually represent more people of faith than those who are not fans of radical inclusivity, right? We have to walk like we have some power. And I think that we have to be committed to also casting a vision, articulating what we are for and not just what we are against. I think that's part of of the strategic misstep that we, and I'm just going to blanket call us progressive people of faith, have made over the past several decades. We have shown up to the fight ready to say what we're against. I don't think we've done such a good job at articulating what we imagine the world can be and what folk who are more conservative have done a masterful job of is crafting a vision for what's possible, creating something out of nothing, you know, just creating an agenda, creating the terms of engagement. And so we are constantly on the defensive and I get why, I know why we've got to have an offense. We've got to have a playbook ourselves, right? And so that's part of it too. I think we, 
We need to walk like we got some power because we are the numerical majority and we have to begin to articulate something else that is inspiring, that is compelling, that is full of rich and diverse leadership instead of always just responding to the others. Join me next week for a discussion about inclusivity and love and the ways in which faith can be a bridge as opposed to a barrier. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we will try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Get in touch with us that way, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Reverend Naomi Washington Leaphart, Reverend Rebecca Becca Seely, Racine Pendarvis, Yuval David, Robin Oaks, Angelique Angel Gravely, Britt East, Kathy Renna, Patrick Salmon, Casey Suffredini, and Jen O'Ryan. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.